This is Crossing Bridges, brought to you by 1UP, a coalition to end police brutality. Each show, we bring together one person from the world of activism and one person from the world of advertising and entertainment to discuss the issues of police reform and social justice. Today's host is Deanna Brown, founder of Entrepreneur for Change and former managing director at MRC Media. She'll be speaking with Dr. William Parham, psychologist and director of mental health and wellness for the National Basketball Association. Today's topic is Generation Numb. And now here's Deanna Brown and Dr. William Parham. Let's jump in, Dr. Parham. Absolutely. Let's explore, broadly speaking, what the role is in media coverage and social media around police brutality and systemic racism and and all that this country is facing. Well, clearly, systemic Racism is not a new area of focus or investigation. We go on record as saying racism is actually America's original sin. So it's been going on for many, many years, decades. It's been manifested in several ways. Fast forward to 2021, uh, racism as a social ill is still very much alive, evident in many, many spaces. And so that has not gone away. It is part of an ism, ideological philosophy and practice is systemic. I would go on record as saying, for example, America has not failed at eradicating it. It has, in fact, succeeded at keeping it in place. So, but that is context. You know, we put in the media, the role of the media, certainly as I understand it, is to tell a story. I think the media comes at it in several different ways. ostensibly people are telling truth as they see it. But I think that there is variability. There are different approaches. There are different degrees of spin on phenomena that people are examining. Therein lies both the excitement, but also the possible confusion. And so arguably uh, media could be an ally. Uh, Media could also be a foe. It really depends on the situation, circumstance, the people involved. So it's a complex relationship between the two. It's a puzzle that can be solved, uh, but it does take both uh, participating and coming up with a solution where you really get at the more objective truth, sometimes, which can be very painful to really confront. And that really ushers in many difficult dialogues. And race is certainly always at the top of that topic. You believe the media hasn't failed in fighting racism, as I think the narrative is sort of currently, including police brutality. You've concluded that they've actually succeeded in perpetuating these myths. Yeah, what I'm saying is that when I take out police brutality as a subject, when I take about inequities out as a topic, whether they're inequities in education, in healthcare, in whatever system you wanna look at, the template that you have to look at first is one of why does divisiveness occur? Why is there the have and have not society? When I have really understood that and really started going back in history, racism is really at the core. White supremacy is at the core. The foundation of America was based on racism and I'm better than you and you are inferior to me. And from that, evolved laws, policies, uh, discrimination, etc., or systemic inequities still exist. 
when you study uh, inequities in education, inequities in healthcare, in access to physical and mental health, disparities in economics, employment, housing, and redlining. I could go on and on, but you have to ask the question, well, why do these things exist? But more importantly, how long have they existed? And so when you look at it from how long it has gone on, arguably, people can say that the system has really failed and not really adequately addressing those social ills. And they can construct an argument that makes sense. I always argue sort of a different position than as my students, not that they have to agree with it. But when I look at big systems such as racism, such as homelessness, human trafficking, have we really failed at eradicating these systems? and these social ills, or is there evidence that we've succeeded at keeping them in place? Nothing stays in place over time and across situations and across decades unless there's a payoff or a benefit to it, period. There is no other reason. And so there is a, a, a sustaining variable of payoff at some level, some of which is economic. And so the system is not designed to be level. The system is not designed to be fair. When you look at it across gender, race, ethnicity, social class, religion, you see all of these differences. And the mistake is that differences are often perceived as negative and bad. When in reality, they are not only just different, but actually represent portals of discovery for added richness to the mosaic that you're trying to examine. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the system has not failed at anything. They really have succeeded at keeping things at bay. So Dr. Parham, what are some examples of coverage of police brutality or even racism in the news that you feel are exemplary of the theory that you speak of where it's not about failure, but in fact about success? Yeah, I don't know that there's any media that I'm aware of who uses that as a premise, as a starting point. I think they earnestly really are wanting to examine the question of inequities. And I think there are many media outlets who do a fair job in asking those questions. But again, for me, where I started, if you ask that from the perspective, has the system failed or succeeded? There are a number of scholars who are asking that question about the longevity of systemic racism, uh, America's original sin. There are any number of scholars who really speak to that and speak to that well, both scholars and an academic standpoint of view, literary artists. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of James Baldwin uh, back in the 60s. I'm thinking of Nehisi Coates, who's uh, currently a contemporary author. Um, Between the World and Me is his book. I mean, there are any number of authors uh, Michael Eric Dyson speaks very eloquently about the longevity and the history and the legacy of racism and, and the systems that are in place to perpetuate that. So there are evidence of other scholars, uh, academic, literary, who are speaking about that. There are movie makers who are uh, producers, uh, directors who are really uh, bringing those themes across in the media in that way. Mm. But in terms of commercial news media, I've not been aware of anybody who's argued from that position. 
Do you, do you have a sense for why the news media is not picking up on those same scholarly remarks or even the entertainment directors and storytellers? When I think of the media, I always think of who are they speaking to and who is their audience. Mm -hmm. and, and I think some questions, approaches are spun based on the listening audience. When you listen, for example, to conservative media, ultra conservative, well, they spin narratives that for me, are just laughable, but there is an audience who believes it. And so in order to keep their bread and butter going, they continue to hire hosts and commentators, news anchors who spin a narrative in the way their audience wants to see it. And so do they really want truth or do they really want to keep the ratings up? And so I think those are some legitimate struggles in which they engage. But I think that that's, again, evidence of parts of the system that are enabling the maintenance of systemic inequities, um, because there's always going to be a population who's going to want to drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, and, and believe the spin. Is there any difference between the news media and the social media coverage of, of the topic? Well, at, at one level, yes, because certainly when I was uh, dating back in the 70s and 80s when they didn't have social media, sure. and I'm anchoring, uh, for example, the story of Rodney King, mm -hmm. that was the very first footage that we literally saw several police officers literally beating an unarmed man while he was laying on the ground. And those officers were acquitted. And that led to subsequent civil unrest. So there was visual evidence that that was going on. But that was absent social media. Now with social media sure. and the lynching by knee of George Floyd, that was all over the world and all over the globe. And we, in fact, saw social protests in various countries around the world. So I think social media has played a big part in raising the question, raising different questions People are seeing things differently. People are seeing things live and in living color versus spun and uh, narrated differently. And so they're left to come up with their own answers and responses to what they're seeing. And so there's a lot of input. But social media also has its fair number of ultra conservative sort of deep state enclaves that really continue to spin divisiveness, racial hatred, and that's an unfortunate byproduct. And I think it, it still goes back to the original uh, racism and America's original sin that is seen in social media. So social media has some power, but it, it also has a lot of misuse. You bring up a really good point about the imagery, right? The video of Rodney King that was primetime television. I was actually, I was at the University of Southern California at the time of the Rodney King riots. And so yeah. very near to my physical location and to, to my story as well. But yeah. also when you look at Floyd's death as well, you see that image did, to your point, hit globally. The imagery is pretty strong in the journalism world and obviously has tremendous impact on a number of topics or issues. Can you speak to the side of imagery and what is images in social or even in news? How is that? moving us forward or backwards? Or imagery is very, very powerful. I mean, it's a powerful tool. It, it's very difficult to unsee something that has been emblazoned in your soul. The George Floyd. Everybody remembers the eight minutes and 46 seconds. Yeah. Everybody remembers the auditory, him calling for his mother. People remember the anger that they felt, that I felt looking at this. 
uh, the anger and the collusion of the other officers allowing the perpetrator to inflict and, and lynch by knee with nobody interrupting. The, those visual images, auditory sounds, you, you don't forget those things. Those are reminders of injustices, indignities of the past. So the George Floyd was nothing new. The Rodney King was nothing new. When you go back to civil rights, when you go all the way back to slavery, these are the vestiges of the same images. What we saw with George Floyd was nothing different than seeing an African-American lynched in the Deep South. I mean, it's a different contemporary visual. It's nonetheless rooted in the same systemic prejudice and hatred. So it does evoke images, but it evokes feelings. Feelings that can be overwhelming, distressing, feeling out of control. There's a spectrum of feelings that come up. And African-Americans and other persons of color in disenfranchised communities are forced to grapple with that on a day-to-day basis. They never don't have to deal with those things. It's perpetual. And that's on top of doing their daily living, of working, families, everything they do. It's just a reality of life, unfortunately. So, Dr. Parm, this is, um, based on this conversation, there are some problems, some very interesting questions, or new questions, that the media should be asking itself. Suggest some of those questions might be. Well, there's actually three or four. One is, uh, it's an ongoing invitation for self-reflection. You know, it's been said that a person will never see their reflection in running water. It is only when the water is still will their reflected image begin to emerge. So I think it takes real self-examination of every journalist, every media personality to really examine who am I and what am I really doing here? Because I think that self-reflection is an important lens through which to really look at what you're looking at. A second related question is, do I really want to know the answer? Because sometimes people don't. And they don't because the answer is difficult admitting that, you know, we live in a system that has succeeded at keeping people out. Whoa, that's a bitter pill to swallow, although it's truth. So we have to ask ourselves a thirdly with with the journalists, to what degree do you want to continue to enter in Faustian bargains? Really, at the extreme, selling your soul to keep your job, to sell print, to sell a story, at the risk of not asking tough questions, at the risk of people sending you hate mail and and letters of dissatisfaction, because they don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Those are realities that are going to be important. But also, getting back to self-reflection, there are processes called stereotype threat, implicit bias, really becoming educated about what that really means and how vulnerable we are to all of that. Because when we can really take a good self-examination and really sort of correct our own histories and clear off the lenses to which we see life, I think you're going to have a different set of questions, a different degree of depth, honesty, and it really is going to advance the conversation in important ways and ideally get to a different solution than we have arrived at to date. Ratings and news have never been higher. Much of that has to do with an electoral cycle, the racial coverage that has, that has really, you know, been activated over the deaths, several deaths of last year. Yeah. A lot to do with the fact that people are at home and, and sort of viewing the world from their, their home. 
thanks to a global pandemic. But it still feels like this self-reflection is is critical. But what are the other things that could be done to really sort of allow us to surface these truths? Well, there, there's an old adage that you see in many of the communities, and, and the phrase goes something like this. There should be no more about us without us. And really what that speaks to is listen to your audience. Really want to know their story. I'm a psychologist, as you know, and one of the things I teach my students is the following. And this is in context of doing counseling and clinical work. The mantra I have them memorize is the following. When I listen to my clients long enough, they will tell me what's wrong with them. When I listen to them just a little bit longer, they will tell me what I can do to make them feel better. So I invite my students to believe that the real therapist in the room is not the therapist. It is the patient. He or she is coming in there with a lot of wisdom, clearly at a point of feeling broken and down or disheveled. Something's going on in their life where they need some additional uh, help. So that's clear. But I say when a person comes into you, 30, 40-year-old, let's say African-American man, there's three things you know out the gate about that person. One, that they're man versus female. Two, that they're African-American versus any other race. And a third, and more importantly, is that they have gotten along for 30 or 40 years without you. So there's something that they have done to succeed. And your goal at best is facilitate them discovering and reconnecting to the innate genius and talents that they have, that they may have lost sight of but they nonetheless are in full possession of moving forward. And so the answers to a lot of questions are in the communities that you need to talk to and really rolling up your sleeves and spending time really wanting to hear from them what their lived experiences are on a day-to-day basis, I think is going to be an important tool. That's great advice. For anyone who's uh, in the business of listening, are there other solutions for the police and or the police brutality that you might recommend? Is there better training from a psychology perspective? What else would you recommend? Yeah, I certainly would recommend uh, mandated training. Police work is tough, it's difficult, it's complex. It requires split uh, decision-making, but there is a psychology involved in all of that. And I think you can't get too much training. I, I think it should be acquired of all entry classes and rookies, but it should also be a mandatory refresher course. Just like they have to keep their shooting and your ability to hold a weapon and discharge a weapon and they have to have updates on that. The same is true for the principles of training. More importantly, and perhaps more difficult, I think you're not going to get as far down the road as you would like speaking about police brutality and, and the police force until you really begin to take a look at the police union, the union that really protects police who go rogue. I, I want to be real clear. I'm not anti-police. In fact, there are a lot of great police and the the notion of having force to protect and to serve the public and to serve the public is wonderful and it's necessary and needed and society certainly would not function without it so the issue isn't with police the issue is really with rogue police the issue is with the union who supports that behavior and a very critical objective examination of that particular part of the system is going to need to occur so that 
in concert with education, in concert with self-reflection. And the continuation of that is an ongoing part of the system, positions them well to have far less issues with the communities that they serve. What concerns, Dr. Parham, do you have about the future? The truth be told, I'm actually one of the more positive and optimistic folks around. I really pride myself on that. I really do believe that there is a treasure in every trial. And despite the hardships, the ravaging of lives, the despair, the depression, the anxiety uh, that this pandemic has really forced upon people, and it really has stretched them beyond their emotional bandwidths and, and in ways that they've never could imagine. At the same time, there's been a lot of opportunities that have emerged. And sometimes the best place to hide is in plain sight. And, and I think hidden in all this pandemic chaos or opportunity for self-reflection to really hit the reset button, to really get one's priorities reset. And am I going down the right path? Am I doing the right thing? The truth of the matter, we are at a year anniversary now, and we entered this COVID-19 pandemic without a playbook. And there have been millions of lives lost, and that certainly is very unfortunate, very sad, and something we should take a moment uh, every day to sort of think about what that really means. But I'm also hopeful that uh, we have been given a time to pause and to say, okay, where are we really headed? How can we really claim our lives, our, the direction in which we are all headed? And so I'm actually very hopeful about all of this, but I think we have to do more than talk. We have to put action behind what we're talking about because talk without action is just simply talk. Yeah. Are there any signs that you can point to that say we're on the path to meaningful change? I, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, because as I mentioned before, when I look back at history, there have been uh, social protests, there have been uprisings, and then there has been a quiet and a calm conversation with promises that things will change. But then you look back and things haven't changed and a situation triggers a new round of social protests and uprisings and the same cycle repeats itself. So I, I think it's too early to tell if there's anything really going to change. I really do believe though, social media and the global impact. And now we have a global witnesses to really the world unfolding before us. I think that is an ingredient that really is going to raise different questions, uh, allow us to look through different lenses, perhaps to respond differently, and more importantly, to be held accountable differently than we have before. So when I look at that, those are all positive as far as I'm concerned. Are there any other questions that you or thoughts you would like to have or... Well, just one, I want to thank you for one, even taking the time to ask these questions. Two, getting back to the listening, another technique I often share with my students in speaking of images, let me leave you with two. I ask them to spell the word listen and actually spell it out. Then I might go around the room and ask them to give me their definition of what that means to them. Sure enough, I get a number of definitions that are pretty consistent across people, but they take full ownership of what they're saying. But then I invite them to consider the following. I said, what if I were to suggest to you that the secret to maximizing what that word spells is hidden in those six letters? What would you say to that invitation? And most people scratch their head and go, what are you talking about? But if you take the word listen and you move those letters around, you come up with the word silent. So the best way to listen is to be silent because then that positions you to really see 
to smell, to sense, and to really go deeper than the surface and really to discover who you're really talking about because you're not talking about a statistic, you're talking about a human being. Mm-hmm. And it is that kind of messaging and, and willingness to go that depth to really listen to the people and the voice of those who are hurting, I think is going to be real important. Dr. Parham, thanks so much for joining us today, sharing your wisdom, your thinking. It's been a pleasure, really, true pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Crossing Bridges, presented by OneOp. Today's topic was Generation Numb hosted by Deanna Brown, founder of Entrepreneur for Change and former managing director of MRC Media, and her guest, Dr. William Parham, psychologist and director of mental health and wellness for the National Basketball Association. To learn more about OneOp and our mission to end police brutality, visit oneop.org.